the incomparable. Number 444, February 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and it's time for another edition of Old Movie Club. Old Movie Club. In this episode, we are going to talk about two musicals from very different time periods. Let me introduce the guests that are going to be joining me. Uh, Dr. Durang is here from the internet, his home. Hello. Hello. There's really nothing I would rather do. Great. Okay. Monty Ashley is also here. The bar has been set, Monty. Hi. Uh, aren't you going to ask me if I'm a mod or a rocker? No No one ever asks me that. No, I am not. Quinn Rose uh, is here. Hello. Hello. Based on the plot of the movies you watch, I should be married by the end of this episode. It's probably going to happen, but it'll be a surprise. There'll be a twist. You never know. Or, or Quinn, you'll just exit the end of the episode on a helicopter. That's your other choice. I'll take it. Steve Lutz is here. Hello. Please, Jason, call me Fuffy. <laughs> Jason, have I mentioned lately you've got a swell voice and a great personality? Uh, oh, boy. You're different. You've got class. And of course, leading the way and choosing the movies that we, that we watched, it is, uh, he's very clean, Philip Michaels. Hello. Well, I think I'd like to express how I feel tonight. In song, what? no, okay. no, we're not gonna, no. go, not gonna do this that. Is not the musical if you episode. start in on petting in the park, I'm gonna slug you. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> so, Phil, explain what you, what movies you chose and why you chose them. So we we have we have as you said two musicals from um, uh, uh, separated by ooh I want to say 31 years. Mm-hmm. You have the Gold Diggers of 1933. And you have A Hard Day's Night from 1964. Uh, one, an early uh, uh, movie musical, uh, not directed by Busby Berkeley, but certainly choreographed by him. And with all the uh, uh, attendant showmanship that that brings. And then the other, of course, is um, uh, the, the first Beatles movie, which is, I think, rightly regarded as one of the greatest movie musicals of of all time if if uh and if it's not it it should be hmm. so why, why why did i pick these i i, I think they're two well, well well again very different in their way they they both um are kind of genre defining uh i i would say i i think um gold diggers is kind of the the template for um the the 1930s uh let's put on a show kind of musical and indeed um Every cast member of this appears in uh, a bunch of other movies, 42nd Street, Footlight Parade, uh, a few make it into Broadway Mel- the Broadway Melody series, some come back in future Gold Diggers movies as different characters, but um, it's all pretty much stamped from the same uh, template. And of course, Hard Day's Night is kind of the uh, the ultimate jukebox picture that kind of paved the, the way for music videos about 10 to 15 years before music videos really were a thing. Yeah, and the monkeys too. Yeah, the Monkeys yeah. TV show a groundbreaking thing that was uh, very clearly inspired by a Hard Day's Night, and then also very clearly inspired music videos as well. There's definitely a, a path, right? And both and both Hard Day's Night and the Monkeys uh, clearly take their cues from the Marx Brothers as well. Mm, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's good. That's a good. That's a good point. Well, so these are very interesting. Uh, I I watched them both. I enjoyed them both. Um, ha- I just want to take take the temperature of the room before we dive into these, which is. <laughs> Had anybody seen these before and what had you seen? Because I've seen A Hard Day's Night uh, several times and had never seen Gold Diggers of 1933 or even knew of its existence, quite frankly, before Phil mentioned it. And I had to check and 
ask him if that, that that was the whole title or if it was just called Gold Diggers and it was from 1933. And the answer is no, that's its title because there are many other Gold Diggers from other years. Yeah, don't don't get Gold Diggers of 1935. You'll be disappointed. Mm, oof. See, that's the worst. I had seen Hard Day's Night a million times and also Gold Diggers of 1933 a million times because one of my favorite genres is early musicals when they still didn't really know what to do with sound. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And they they started to figure it out with Gold Diggers of 1933. Mm. <laughs> well, the six years before Gold Diggers of 1933, starting with the jazz singer. I would invite you to watch the jazz singer if you want to if you want to make bad. If you want to say that sound is bad, <laughs> they mostly were just would kind of throw a whole bunch of vaudeville acts into the movie. And like, here's a guy whose whole act is he sneezes funny and he's getting 10 minutes of airtime in our movie because we don't know what to do. <laughs> don't forget about Zipke's Kentucky Pillbillies. Well, that's a nod to those movies, right? There's always a whole bunch of audition scenes where like in a Footlight Parade, you get that where mm-hmm. Jay- Jimmy Cagney has to put up with a whole bunch of weirdos. Here you only get one round of weirdos. All right. Exactly. Steve, had you seen uh, both these movies? Uh, I had seen Hard Day's Night, uh, like Monty, a million times, yeah. having been a Beatles nerd in high school and, and beyond. Um, Gold Diggers of 1933 was brand new to me. In fact, when I heard the title, I thought somebody was putting me on. Uh, it turns out it's a real thing, and mm. it's a very confusing and strange thing for somebody who's never <laughs> seen a 1933 musical before. I enjoyed it? <laughs> Question mark? <laughs> uh, I think it's fascinating as a uh, as a cultural touchstone and as kind of a a historical piece i'm not so sure about the movie itself but uh i was entertained for sure so all right so so a new a new b for one and a classic for under quinn have have you watched either of these before uh these were both new to me wow um i was generally familiar with a hard day's night because it's such a huge part of our cultural zeitgeist i think but i had actually never seen it um and so that was fun and i definitely never heard of gold diggers of 1933 and i'll say very briefly about this is that um i have seen i've like familiar with enough musicals from like the 50s era that i was like okay i get what's going on here but this was the first musical that made me really understand why people don't like musicals and that <laughs> oh wow <laughs> hello hello oh, wow. Like, here's, here's my thing yep. here's my thing i i hear from people all the time i love musicals obviously it's my whole thing but like people I hear from people all the time. I don't like musicals. I don't like that they just stop and sing a song and I want to see the rest of the movie. And I've never felt like that until I watched this movie. Mm. And I did enjoy it. And I did enjoy the music. But I felt like it stopped dead every time to sing a song (laughs) that had nothing to do with the plot. And I'm like, Mm. oh, this is how other people feel. Yeah. I mean, this is this isn't a musical where they sing their feelings they just cut to the musical that they're making in the movie we can weigh into the uh the the structure of it after after everyone gets their say but yeah uh, it is it is definitely jarring if you are not familiar with with the early musical format well it's also odd in in the fact that it's a musical but there are only two musical numbers in the entire first hour so it's kind of pushing the bounds of what i think of as a musical from that perspective they get you up front with that but we'll get into it dr drang i want to check with you have you seen both of these before uh, well, yeah, I've seen Hard Day's Night many, many times. Of course. I had not seen had not seen Gold Diggers of, of thirty three. I had seen scenes from it. I had se- I'm sure I had seen uh, I'm in, uh, we're in the money, in the money. and uh, the the violin uh, scene. I'd uh-huh. seen that before, but not the whole movie. And uh, what I can say, Quinn, is welcome to my world. Um, <laughs> here, uh, to me, musicals have always been 
oh, there's like a whole movie made out of those portions of a Marx Brothers movie that I fast forward through. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was not disappointed by Gold Diggers of 1933. It, 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 it hit that right on the spot. All right, time to take a break. And let me tell you about our sponsor for this episode of The Incomparable. It's Express. VPN. You know, we see a lot in the media these days about security breaches of various kinds on the internet. You got to wonder where your data is going. Something as simple as sending an email could put your private information at risk. And one thing that you might not know is you may be being tracked by your internet provider itself. They can see all the traffic going out of your devices and across your network at home or even your mobile network. They can record your browsing history, the apps you use, and then they can sell that information to people who want to build a profile and profit from your data. You can take back your privacy with ExpressVPN, which works by securing and anonymizing your internet browsing. It encrypts your data. It hides your public IP address. You can turn it on with one click. It's got an easy-to-use app. I've used it. Really, you launch an app on my iPad, press a button, and I'm encrypted. It's that simple. It runs seamlessly in the background. One runs on computers, runs on phones, runs on tablets, costs less than $7 a month, and was rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar. Comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you ever use public Wi-Fi, especially, and you want to keep bad guys away from your unencrypted public Wi-Fi data, use ExpressVPN. Go to expressvpn.com slash Snell right now. If you don't want your online history in the hands of your internet provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the answer. ExpressVPN.com slash Snell. You can get three months free with a one-year package. Once again, that's ExpressVPN.com slash Snell. Three extra months free with a one-year package. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for supporting The Incomparable. All right. So, Phil, do you want to do you want to explain uh, Gold Diggers of 33 to us and we'll talk about it? I would love to start with Gold Diggers of 1933. So the the thing about musicals and Monty can 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 jump in here if I'm going off on a a, a wrong track. But sort of in the in these early 30s musicals, it was let's open with a number. We'll show people rehearsing the number at some point in the movie. Then we'll have a movie. And then at the end of the movie, we'll have a whole bunch of musical numbers. All yeah. the numbers that we've been working up to. That's basically the the format. You had to see where all the music was coming from at this point. They didn't yet trust that people could just start singing and the violins would come in. You have to show the violins. Yes. And, and, and all of the early musicals are about putting on a musical or putting on some sort of show or some sort of review. It's not just uh, 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 My Fair Lady, where suddenly a flower girl starts singing in the streets of London. That's crazy. Crazy people do that. No, honest to goodness people, they put on Broadway shows. So, um, the, the the plot of this is basically, we're putting on a Broadway show, we're opening with a, a, a musical number, It's we're in the money, it's Ginger Rogers singing it, and uh, singing in Pig Latin, too. And mm-hmm. it's very Yeah, what the hell is up with that? That was that really was weird. impressive, though. Apparently she was just goofing off on the set one day and singing around in pig latin and daryl zanuck was walking but happened to be uh on the set and said that's really funny you should do that it's hep it's jazzy it's i uh, feel like that's got to be an apocryphal story because they they make a point of zooming way in on her for that and then back out as soon as it ends so, uh, the I mean, the only reason it's not into, it's from ginger rogers biography apparently or wow. autobiography but maybe she maybe she was pulling people's leg i don't know well, maybe maybe this was a maybe this was a take after she did it for yeah. fun, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's kooky. Did you notice that their costumes mean they're literally 
In the Money? In the Money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of coins. Coin-themed production number. Uh, Ginger Rogers is one of the titular gold diggers. She is, according to the plot description on Wikipedia, the glamour puss, mm-hmm. which, I, which um, um, I think is just a delightful... Well, she's got the nice dress. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's true. she likes to dress up <laughs> from the from the drugstore where she works. Yeah, she's a hostess at the drugstore where they have an amazing dress. <laughs> Just the one. The other uh, 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 ladies she, I think, lives with are Polly, who's the, the delightful Ruby Keeler. She's kind of the dancer. And there's Carol, who's played by Joan Blondell of Grease fame. She's the, and other movies. And here come the brides. <laughs> so many great pre-code movies have Joan Blondell. Sh- sure, but to, to modern audiences, it, every time you see her in the description, it's Joan Blondell, Grease. Grease. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> in if you see Joan Blondell in a pre-code movie, which you did if you watched Gold Diggers of 1933, <laughs> you will see more of her than you are expecting to if you look closely. Yeah, yeah this is very definitely a pre-code movie yes. all the way. There's a Absolutely. whole lot of skit on display. And a few fairly off-color jokes for 1933. Mm-hmm. In fact, and in, in, involved in one of the musical numbers, there's 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 women changing in silhouette, and then the a mischievous little person comes and <laughs> lifts up the curtain. But we'll get to that later on. That that particular uh, wine dark dream. Um, so <laughs> you, you've got Joan Blondell. She's Carol. She's the singer. And the the last of the foursome is Trixie, who is the uh, the comic relief. Yeah. Which you can tell from her name. The yes. singer's name is also Carol. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, <laughs> and uh, uh, they live in an apartment. They were going to be in this uh, the show featuring in the money, but uh, the the it, there's a depression going on. In case you haven't heard, mm. despite the what dis- really despite the thing that the song was saying about them being in the money, they are not. They are decidedly not in the money. And the sheriff comes and seizes everything, and that leaves poor old Barney Hopkins, who's the producer, oh. looking for a new show. Um, he is played by an actor named Ned Sparks in every movie ned sparks has that same damn cigar that yeah i would say his role is mostly played by the cigar but there's also a hat involved you are savagely discounting the importance of shouting (laughs) he has a lot of that and he's good at it oh he's great at it i love ned sparks Ned Sparks had a character, and Ned Sparks was going to play that character, no matter what movie you cast him in. And fortunately, he was always cast as the guy with the cigar and the hat who shouts a lot about the show going on. And that probably saved him a lot of time uh, learning about lines. So he drops by the uh, the Gold Diggers apartment, and he tells them about this great new show he's working on that's going to be about all the all the problems in the world today. But uh, he just doesn't have the the money to put it on. And while they're talking across the the way from the apartment is uh brad who's played by dick powell and he is a singer songwriter uh guy and 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 uh barney hears the music and goes that's the kind of music i wanted my show and and a minute uh, ago he was claiming he had a whole show yeah. he doesn't have anything no it's no. amazing well he's got a theater i think reserved yes. uh, and he's got a plan but he has no money and apparently no material <laughs> and apparently yeah. songs that can be dropped at the drop of a hat when yeah. he hears some guy well he has a contract with the guys who actually did the music for Gold Diggers of 1933, but he he cans them in in what is a pretty good joke, I think. Yes, so that Dick Powell can. Uh... I'm going to cancel my contract with Warren and Dubin. Give me this guy mm-hmm. who lives in the apartment across from you. Well, he tries him out first on the on the piano and has him sing, and and yes. then and says, "No, this is great." And this is uh, this is what Polly's boyfriend, yes, pa- Polly's boyfriend uh, Brad, uh, and uh, as it turns out, Brad says, "Hey." I can give you $15,000 to uh, to 
to back your show, which, you know, is kind of mysterious. Everyone decides mm -hmm. in the when, when there's a depression. I don't know what fifteen thousand dollars is in, in today's money, but in 1933, you figure that's a lot of that's a lot of dough to have lying mm -hmm. around. This is the point in my notes in which everything became all caps. I was like, what is happening? Why is Brad <laughs> writing the show? Why does Brad have fifteen thousand dollars? Why is he just allowed to decide who the star of the show is? Who is making the decisions around here? Well, it's it's all Brad, baby, because yeah. Brad is saying, hey, I'll give you the money but you gotta cast polly and all and all polly's friends adjusting for inflation uh fifteen thousand dollars in 1933 is about two hundred and eighty thousand dollars today and we should also mention that brad pays it in cash, in cash yes <laughs> and by the way barney says he can put this show on for fifteen thousand dollars if he chisels if he really works it to the bone if he saves all the money he can you know so later on there's only going to be two chimpanzees and 500 <laughs> people on stage yes and, and, and i I, wanna, I would also want to say you really see where the money went when the violins are lit up and, and there's all these crazy sets. People love spectacle. Yeah. So um, the speculation is that Brad is some sort of criminal. And mm. there, there's there's a plot line that kind of goes nowhere where they speculate that he was involved in some sort of bank robbery. Yeah. And there's some guy he pays off that really goes nowhere. I realized yeah. on my second rewatch. What is that about? It is not tightly plotted. Let's just <laughs> okay, don't say. <laughs> a, a common, another common thread between this in a hard day's night is really you don't pull too hard at the threads of the of the plot here or else you have no sweater left they're putting on the show there's a there's a, a the juvenile lead who is no longer juvenile he is what in his 15th year 16th year is the the juvenile lead 18th and the the joke is that he has lumbago Ah, oh, it's a funny disease. There is nothing more 30s than lumbago. <laughs> yes. And and he can't go on. Oh, no, the show is threatened. He's getting a rub down by the bootlegger, which I think is a is a real full service bootlegger you got there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's 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 what his alcohol is really for. Well, you can't drink it. Um, so so Brad decides to go on and uh, it's soon realized to Brad actually is he comes from money. He comes from oh. a blue blooded Boston family. He's not really Brad Roberts. He's Robert Bradford. Yes. What a clever way to hide. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, that's how I would do it. I'd flip around <laughs> my name and, and disappear like a, like a Houdini. Michael Phillips, no one would ever believe it. Do you guys not have first and last names interchangeable? Yeah. Seems like your problem. Yeah. Well... Warren William does. Oh, I yes. love Warren William so much. And he plays Brad's brother, Jay Lawrence Bradford, who's a who's a stuffy Boston blue, <laughs> blue blood who's decided that Brad is disgracing the family by appearing in musicals, and even worse, uh, uh, having designs upon a an ingenue on a on a singer. Warren William has one of them cad mustaches and stands, so you can always see his silhouette. And oh, one yes. year played Perry Mason and Philo Vance in back to back movies. So he and his this lawyer, who is my favorite actor in this movie, the great guy Kibby, who plays Fanuel H. Peabody, or oh. or, or Fanny for Fanny short. Peabody. Oh, Fanny boy. Peabody. Uh, and and Fanny has many memories of the time when he was a young man and chasing after after showgirls. In fact, it's um Fanny who gives this this movie its title because he he says, Oh, those 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 women in, in shows, they're they're chiselers, they're 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 gold diggers, and we've got to keep uh, poor Brad away from them or they'll take all his money and so uh down they go uh from boston to uh tell polly to hit the skids 
And th this is really, uh, at this point, we've seen, as you say, two musical numbers. We had the in the, mon uh, in, in, in the money uh, number at the beginning of the movie, and then we had the petting in the park uh, uh, oh, wow. musical, mus musical <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> yes. Let's all unbutton here and, and stretch out for petting in the park. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> the, the, it's, a, it's this um, really hummable song, because I've been humming it all day. Oh, yeah. Um, it gets stuck in your head. And it gets stuck in your head, and it goes park. on for like 10 minutes. And later comes back as an underscore, by the way, because yeah, like right. you can't forget it, so you got to bring it back. I mean, where where is this theater, by the way? It's the size of an Amazon warehouse, and the seating area is like this tiny little like two sections. And there's this these four different uh, tableaus that unfold during the petting in the park number. See, at this point in movie musicals, they decided instead of just trying to replicate stage musicals. Let's make a movie musical and start doing crazy things they can't do on stage, like close-ups and have yes. rain inside. The and same... shots overhead where people are swirling yeah. in patterns. Yeah, I feel like to really enjoy a Busby Berkeley number, at least a number from this this show, uh, it helps to have a seat up in the rafters so you can properly appreciate when they make shapes and stuff. Another movie that came out this year is Footlight Parade, starring oh my God, Jimmy that... Cagney. It is way crazier with the visuals of what allegedly happened on stage. And yeah. in Petten in the Park, it's like a whole football field. <laughs> and then they cut to another whole football yeah. field. Yeah. <sighs> also, I feel like I feel like it helps to have a great love of peekaboo. To really, to really get into Berkeley, <laughs> and um, the, the, I think my favorite tableau, and people can can jump in here in, in the petting in the park number, is when um, they're in the park and there is a little baby in a crib. Except it's not a little baby; it is a it is a disturbing little man. It's who Billy is, Barty. Uh, it's Bill, young Billy Barty, uh, who's doing uh, up to all sorts of chaos. Or he's uh, uh, shooting spitballs at cops and roller skating. And he's uh, only like nine. That's pretty yeah, he's young. Eight or nine. Here. Yeah. yeah, and uh, and and raising the curtain on uh, he, and dressed as a baby and raising the curtain on on ladies as they're changing into their their numbers and 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 Ruby Keeler is putting on a metal bathing suit that uh, <laughs> sexually frustrates Dick Powell, so he has to break out a can opener at the end of the number. Uh, the, the moment where it rains, I thought was was the most fascinating moment because that's when I was I, I said, wait a second. Like, where is the rain coming from? Where is it going? How is the audience not drenched at this point? Why is there real rain happening on a in a stage show? <laughs> they're, they're, they're wearing rain slickers like at a Gallagher show. <laughs> You're lucky there's no swimming pool. And they're, and they're getting soaking wet on stage, right? And I thought, okay, well, the logic is out the window here, and that's just how it's going to be. But Patton in the Park, so, like, it is what it sounds like, people. This is this is the uh, a musical ode to some some heavy petting in the park. That's what it is. Like ideally with some gal that just sidled up to you on the park bench that you've never yeah. met before. Bad bad girl, bad boy petting in the mm -hmm. park. That's what this it, it, and then when you when you're like, "Okay, well, that was kind of weird, but uh, you know, they're sitting on the park bench and they're singing this song." Oh no, 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 because then they repeat it like 10 times, increasingly larger every single time until everybody is in the park. Everybody is petting in the park. There are there are chimpanzees petting in the zoo that's in the park. It just keeps going. It is it is amazing. It is like I, I took it comedically where it's like, okay, okay, I got you. I see what you're doing here. And then they just keep on upping the stakes. Yeah, they do. Uh, it's it's crazy. It's I, I, I think this is the scene where you you really uh make your decision whether you're all in with this movie. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, I will say that when Cigar and Hat Man chisels, he gets his dollars worth because this no, he, is at least oh, a fifteen thousand dollar number yeah. right here. And, yeah. Imagine the forty thousand dollar version of this show. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. This song is just twice as long. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with twice as many people and more rain, and it snows, and there's a tornado at one point. I think something. There's like a that. full zoo. So I, I think you know what what made this what made people want to see this as opposed to a regular Broadway show, or people would want to see both. I'm sure, but is there is actual camera movement here? You don't just yeah. go you know static and then and then the up you know shooting up uh, down from above. But there's during this thing where everybody is petting in the park and they go through a series of couples of different you know. Stereotypes, basically. I think ending on the ch- on the chimpanzees. Maybe I don't remember. Uh, uh, starting because it's the close up on the animal crackers. Yes, oh, it goes yeah, to the yeah, animal okay. crackers and then the zoo. This all makes sense if you've seen the movie. We're not crazy people talking <laughs> oh, about the does animal it, does crackers. It, does it? Does yeah, it all make well, sense? At least, yeah. But the camera swings around through all these couples, and and, and so that, that's what that's what sets it apart from you know a lockdown or or if you were at a Broadway show. The other thing is. Um, and we saw this. This was in "We're in the Money" too. Is both of my uh, my notes for both of these say "Parade of Lovelies," and and that's what the, you know. You'll get this zoom in on the girls uh, in the chorus who are who are coming by, and you get to see their legs and you get to see their faces. Well, usually first you'll see some sort of prop, and then their faces will pop out from behind it because that's very arousing, apparently. There's that. Well, yes, and then you know, plucking the coins off of their off of their midriff when they when the coins. You, when you have to foreclose on them. There's all Aye. there's a lot of good stuff here in 1933, mm-hmm. but it's it's again that's something that you couldn't see in a Broadway show. You don't get you don't get that close. So they really oh you want to see you want to see these good looking girls oh we're gonna go right up right up their nostrils. Well, of course, a lot of the <laughs> audience for this couldn't go to Broadway. Right, sure. sure. Yes. But even the sophisticated people who lived yeah. in New York in those great apartments that they all had um, <laughs> and, who, and, who, and who could go to Broadway, they wouldn't see this when they went to no. a Broadway show. And, and and it is worth noting that when you when you watch a 1930s movie, you, you're really uh, rolling the dice between will it be the fixed camera? We're just going to film a play or is it going to be something like Gold Diggers where there's movement and, and some understanding of this this medium that's only a decade, decade and a half old with with talkies. Um, so uh, six years old. Yeah, they're, they're still just totally guessing. Exactly, because um, what uh, to, to go off on a little tangent. Uh, one of the things about the the, the, the original Dracula with Bela Lugosi is that that camera does not move in that no. in that movie. It just <laughs> they set up the shot, and you it is your job, actor, to get in the frame somehow because <laughs> we we don't have time to reposition this camera. Whereas um, uh, um, uh, Mervyn Leroy and 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 Busby Berkeley really have the cameras swooping around not just in the um in the musical numbers but also um a lot in in just the the regular uh talkie scenes yeah it took me a while to deal with that fact that that uh i mean obviously the the reasons are sound for why we're getting all these zooms and and focusing in on animal crackers boxes and so forth but for a while i was sitting there going god this audience has to be so utterly flummoxed how how were they supposed to know they were supposed to look at the animal crackers box at that exact moment in time <laughs> and then look up and see the monkeys yeah, there's a lot of camera moves where the the theoretical audience definitely can't see anything. No. <laughs> well, yeah, and the entirety of, of the, the pretty patterns that they make from overhead, of course, just looks to them like ladies lifting balls and setting them back down on the ground. Mm-hmm. 
it's not that exciting, really, to be an audience member. So, Quinn, how did you, as a as a first timer for this, uh, how how did you read this uh, this production number? For what it was, I did. I thought it was long. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that is what it was. Yep. But <laughs> but I also like. I do think it, it was it was a lot of fun. But my problem was I kind of lost the thread of it. Like I was watching this movie and I don't know what I was, I was doing some kind of craft at the same time. I often watch movies and do crafts. So, and then I would like look down for two seconds. I look up again and they're in a different place. And I'm like, wait, are they still on stage? Did they transition into a different song? Like what's happening? And then Uh I realized, no, like, no, they are still performing on this stage that apparently is the size of Rhode Island. Why are there suddenly (laughs) bleeding troops marching in the rain? (laughs) Oh my God, that's a whole other thing. The premise of Footlight Parade is that there used to be little uh, live action vignettes between movies. So they like yeah. show a movie and then people come out in front of the screen and go, hi, buy some popcorn. Except in Footlight Parade, it's Jimmy Cagney doing those and they are full Busby Berkeley they, They're like these 25 minute numbers that they're each more ridiculous than the last. <laughs> and you're all, <laughs> who goes to the movies? You can just go, I'm just going for the prologue to see uh, to see the, the spectacular troop dance. Dick Powell in that too. Mm-hmm. Once uh, Petting in the Park is over, <laughs> I, I, I feel, although it seems like it never ends, but it does eventually end. <laughs> uh, we, we get our we get our uh, our plot part here, which is yes. the, the revelation that the boyfriend is actually a millionaire and that his brother and attorney, good old Peabody, uh, Fanny, mm-hmm. sorry, are uh, are on the case. And, and, and we end up with the double double cross kind of thing where they're playing these uh, these showgirls who are rubes into giving them information about uh, this girlfriend and the the showgirls who are not rubes are playing them to try to get money out of and them. And we should and, mention that the that the blue bloods have confused um, uh, Joan Blondell. Yes, uh, Carol. For, Carol, uh, they think is Polly. And I thought right. this was really interesting. Carol makes a point of never lying to the older brother, um, mm-hmm. but she allows him to assume that she's Polly. In fact, she tries repeatedly at the start to tell him yeah. the right. opposite. And, and, and he won't listen. He's just he yeah. just bowls over her and. and He's here to threaten Dick Powell with, we'll take away your inheritance, which never carries any weight because he's already a huge Broadway star and the producer of apparently a hit. So he never cares about the threat at all. And he loves Polly and doesn't care, right? Like he he would be, it turns out, yes, he is a successful Broadway musical guy at this point and he doesn't care He and he's in love. So it carries no weight, but there is this moment where it's like, aha, but we can turn the tables on them. And this is one of the things I appreciated about this movie is it's, you know, this, this whole plot is this kind of, uh, you know, it's a farce, but um, what I like about it is that it, it's like one layer more than I expected to get out of it, which is I expected it to be about the evil brother and his attorney um, doing all these terrible things things to these these uh showgirls and uh i did not expect that extra layer where they are on it and on top of it and have turned it all the way back around and uh that that is the as as we went through all these different scenes and the dinner party and the the parties at their hotel room or apartment or whatever it is like it's all really delightful because there are there are all the different uh, opposing motivations and yeah i i really i really loved this stuff there are a bunch of things in it that just made me laugh out loud not least of which is when um when 
Carol, is it no? When is it? Trixie, Trixie takes Cara, takes. Trixie uh, is the comic actress yes. who keeps who keeps ordering hats. Oh, oh yeah. So she orders hats, <laughs> COD that apparently all cost seventy five dollars. A young Sterling Holloway delivers uh, a hat for seventy five dollars. Yes. Winnie, Winnie the, Pooh the Pooh comes to the door with a hat. As a boy, fantastic. Mm-hmm. I, I love him showing up because everybody talks very fast in this movie, which I love. But then suddenly there's the soothing tones of Winnie the Pooh <laughs> taking his time. But I get so oh, no, seasick. this is going to be a $75 I suppose, I suppose it will be $75, Rabbit. Oh, bother. Pooh, be sure and get a tip. I totally love this turn in the movie. This is where I really started enjoying this because I deeply respect that Trixie is in the bathroom and then hears these guys being rude to her friend and just immediately makes a snap decision to start yeah. trolling the crap out yep. of them. <laughs> oh my God, it's beautiful. And she plays them like a fiddle and gets them to buy all her hats immediately. Yeah. Well, and Carol's not a chump either. She picks up almost immediately on what Trixie's laying down. Yeah, mm-hmm. Z- Z- Trixie zeroes in on Fanny like he like 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 a lion sees the weakest gazelle and just mm-hmm. goes in there and 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 plays him like a fiddle. Well, there's very much it's sort of like oh they say we're gold diggers. Uh, well, we'll show them who's a gold digger. <laughs> it's just like, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna go to town on these guys. And then of course there's that great moment in the uh, store where Trixie has the dog that she also is going to name Fanny, and she hands it to the to 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 the guy and he looks in the mirror and the dog is like this smush faced dog and it's sticking out its tongue and he sticks out his tongue and it sticks out its tongue more and it and and that i i was dying i that was my that was maybe my favorite moment in the movie because it's so ridiculous and yet also kind of brutally funny about how this uh this attorney who's supposed to be there to lay the hammer on the younger brother has instead been completely taken for a ride it's great <laughs> Mm-hmm. My note from that scene is that the uh, pet shop owner asks her what the dog's name is, mm-hmm. and she tells him Fanny, and he pauses and gets kind of a sour look on his face and says, it's not that kind of dog. Dear God, what does that mean? I think it's a girl. Boy, dog, girl, dog, I believe. Yeah. But Yeah, well, I think, it's a, I think it's boy, dog, girl, dog, and I think that the girl dog, it may be referring to either that that's a woman's name or it may be referring to other word that is i think still in well, use I, I in parts of the world i assume that it was the word thing but then it's what is it's not that kind of dog well, I think, mean in I that think case it's a, it's, it's a it's terrifying. a boy dog and her point is that that but uh peabody is also fanny and he's a boy so it's okay and that's that's literally what she says is is well he, it's him we call him fanny too and then the yeah. pet star is like okay you people are crazy but whatever and I feel like there's some really terrifying thing that used to happen with dogs in 1933 that's fallen it's out of possible. favor. I don't know. We're not privy to. I don't know. But I love that scene. Love that dog. Good dog. It's pretty great. I'm certain I've seen that dog in other movies. Yeah, and just they they and they get him. They get him drunk. They take him out to dinner. Um, mm-hmm. There's a there's a great moment where they um, are on the balcony, and uh, and the older brother is talking to Polly, who he doesn't realize is Polly, and she's got this whole setup about like her father worked for the government. He was a mailman and all this stuff. But the idea yes. is it makes him mean, like why can't why can't he be interested? Why can't in my you? brother marry a girl like you? And everybody else is on the other side of this pillar going. <laughs> ha ha, yeah. we've got him now and but it's all it's all kind of delightful and and uh and then the brother basically is completely wrapped around uh, carol's finger to the point where he's like well i'm gonna disown my brother for marrying a showgirl but you i'm gonna marry because yeah. <laughs> he doesn't care about being consistent or anything i guess it's hilarious this restaurant is apparently is an incredibly classy speakeasy yes yes it is they, <laughs> they, they, they say it's a speakeasy and it is i had a moment uh, there are a couple moments in this where i'm like oh right prohibition sure mm-hmm 
Yeah. <laughs> Doesn't seem to be working. No. They're no. drinking all the time. It's a new speakeasy, too. They just got that thing started. Yeah. We are in here um, in a long section where there is not only no singing. Now, and it seemed much longer to me. I was not. I loved Guy Kibbe. Uh, and and I liked seeing um, both of the hat guys, including Sterling Holloway, who I thought at first, is that Hoagie Carmichael? No, that's not Hoagie Carmichael. Oh. Then then I heard the voice. Oh, is that Andy Devine? No, no, no. <laughs> oh, it's Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, okay. I, I knew it immediately. I was like, hey, that's Sterling oh, yeah. Holloway. Wow. I saw him and, and I was yeah. like, there's Winnie. Yeah. But who's the, the other guy's got to be somebody that was well known at the time. He looks and talks like Ross Matthews, but. <laughs> Surely it can't be. No, well, he looks like sure a, he not. looked like a really young Oliver Hardy, but of course Oliver Hardy wasn't young at this point. So right. I, I don't know. It's not just that we don't have any singing or dancing during this. What seemed to me to be like a five-hour stretch. There isn't even any, any incidental music. It's you, you get that characteristic sound when you're watching an old movie of shh <laughs> in the background. Uh, because it's just tape, tape hiss or noise or whatever. And you don't have any, there's no background music for a very long stretch of this music. And we're about to finish it. I think, you know, shortly after um, Polly lays it on thick to uh, to Jay Lawrence. Well, I don't think they've invented non-diegetic music yet. No, they they act well. They they start, they bring it back. They they bring up some some music in the background okay. right after because I I wrote it down. Oh, he, oh, here it is. Suddenly, oh, there's right. background music again, <laughs> and it's enough. it's right after it's right after uh, Warren William uh, collapses uh, drunk after he's kissed Joan Blondell. Ah, oh, yes, and they they again talk about the trolling. Quinn, I mean, oh they're, they're like, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to pick his nearly lifeless body and uh, strip him naked. Strip him, strip him down to his game. under. This is a known scam. Down to his undershirts. Put him in the bed. He's going to make. We're going to make him think that he just doesn't remember, and that there is a night of passion in the bed, just because it's going to give us yet another level on top with that with that guy. Which it about, it does. About the only thing they don't do is leave a note that says that he he's missing a kidney and that he needs to go see a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do want to note real quick in the previous scene of um, Ginger Rogers shows up a couple times throughout this whole thing. Yeah. And every time she tries to talk to him, she's like trying to talk to Fanny and Trixie just lays in on her. And I don't I don't know why Trixie hates her so much. But every time she shows up, she's like, do not talk to my man. If you were trying to get your hooks into some guy and Ginger Rogers starts nosing yeah, about, seriously. you have to get rid of her. You're the comedian, right? Like, you're not the glamour one of the bunch. You're the funny one. And then Ginger Rogers is like, oh, this guy, I'm going to take this guy. I think, yeah, I think that's why she's like that. Also, I keep coming out of the movie while watching it and thinking, um, Ginger Rogers, they wanted her to be in it, but she couldn't be in it very much. So every time she shows up, Trixie says, go away, and she leaves. And then she's not in the movie again for a very long time, <laughs> which is just kind of funny. And there, and she's super mean to her, but I get why. She takes an enormous amount of abuse in the few scenes that she's in. I've invested so much in this guy. Do not bring your beautiful face in my way. Get out. I think also it was kind of a trope at the time, because in, in a lot of these movies, Ginger Rogers usually plays the glamorous character who the other girls kind of hate because stop, stop stealing men away from us. Glamorous Ginger Rogers. We we're we're only working with what we have here. In principle, yeah. But two of the other three are Ruby Keeler and Joan Blondell. So they don't have any... It's true. 
This is a very sure. glamorous apartment. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She's yeah. always very friendly to them. She's the one that tells them that the guy that Hopkins is starting a new show, and yeah. what she gets is kicked and <laughs> thrown out the exit. And she, oh yeah, and earlier she lost her dress too. So what's weird about some of these scenes with uh, in the midsection here with uh, with Jay Jay Lawrence? It's it's very unusual to me because usually in uh, in one of these films where we're supposed to sort of see two characters sort of grow together and then fall in love or whatever. You would never see the, the the male or the female really be shown just completely plastered. If Jay Lawrence was to be drunk in like a modern film, he would be like a suave drunk. And he's a little bit impaired, but he's still kind of cool. And in this, he's a sloppy drunk. Oh, yeah. He's, he's a disaster. He's all over her. There's a kiss that happens that I think is supposed to be romantic, but it has to be so sloppy and boozy and gross. And it's it's really off putting because the majority of the time that Carol knows him, he is just sloppy drunk. And the fact that they even end up together, it's like I, I feel like I'm supposed to be happy about that, but it's it seems like it's destined for for awfulness. Yeah, pre code movies were buck wild. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I, I appreciated that, that he he very much is um, barely holding it together. And then she gives him like three shots and then he immediately collapses. And it's like, OK, yeah. all right, movie. I, I see. I, like, I believe that. I believe that he passed out at that point because he was already pretty close to the edge. And then he drank a lot more. Very, yeah, it very just really messes up the whole happy ending, everybody's married thing for me, because uh, <laughs> that, is, that is not a relationship that's based on a strong foundation, in my opinion. Mm. Well, well, this segues nicely into the fact that we've gone a long time without singing, so they've got to wrap up the uh, comedy portion of this musical comedy. And yes. uh, uh, so, so uh, Brad and Polly get married. That makes uh, J. Lawrence Bradford very mad, and he's, I'm going to have the marriage annulled, and that that causes uh, Carol to lay down the law and say, well, then you're giving up on me if you interfere in their marriage. So finally, they decide that they're going to get married, and that Brad and Polly can stay married, and mm-hmm. for God knows what reason, Trixie and Fanny are going to get married, too. Yeah. Everyone's married, except for poor Ginger Rogers, yeah. who has well, to... the whole annulment turns out that it was a put, it was a put on anyway, yeah. because he hires a hack actor to come in and be the cop that's going to take him away. Mm-hmm. You can't fool Ned Sparks. He will shout down your attempt to trick him. Also, the brother, um, <laughs> the brother finds out that it's not Polly who he's in love with by reading the front page paper uh, story about how his brother has married that other girl who turns out is actually Polly. And so it's one of those, huh? Kind of moments where he realizes that they've been completely hoodwinked. He's been had. Yes. And, and, you know, Trixie and Peabody, I I just think that they're, uh, you know, they're just made for each other. There's, they got the dog, they're ready to go. What, what, what more can you ask for? Uh, and this all happens, by the way, while like while the orchestra is just plan- playing the same thing over and over again because they, they need to go on for the big final number. Yeah, everyone's shouting at each other one foot off stage. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's quite dramatic. And then and so in the end, everybody's getting married except Ginger Rogers. Uh, I'm sure she'll come to the weddings and then they'll yell at her and tell her to go out the exit and not <laughs> maybe, actually attend the wedding. Maybe she'll meet Fred Astaire there and they can, they can make some we movies. We can hope she'll be fine. This is the 
weird moment in this movie where the, where the movie's like, all right, plot is resolved. Now the last five minutes of this movie are going to be our pro- much promised big finish, super depressing scene about the fate of the working man in the Great well, Depression. For, well, we first, got the violins first. You get the Shadow Waltz, which is oh, the, right. the dance right. number with the violins, which is stylish mm-hmm. and classy and uh, apparently was super difficult to film because there were blackouts and people were getting electrocuted. And, and the little bows and, an and the and the and there's yeah, a, an a border yes. around the the um the violins that lights up and well, it's very when, when your theater has its own weather weather patterns and storms can <laughs> spring risky. up at any moment you really don't want to be messing with a bunch of yeah. neon tubes on your mm-hmm. your props and then then comes the depressing remember my forgotten man number mm-hmm. um which you know i it, it's one of the things i'll be honest that appeals to me about this uh about this musical because it's it's not just a a, a dopey little frippery but it actually has something to to say about what's going on in the world that it's being made in um before we got started monty pointed out to me that he really likes the fact that this movie starts with the up tempo happy we're in the money number and ends right. with the forgotten man which i totally get from a i think that's a very nice way of looking at this but from my perspective i watched this movie and said were they afraid that the happy ending was going to get people too up and then they were going to go out the doors of the movie theater into the great depression were they yes. afraid of that oh. so they're like no 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 this was to gently set them back we into gotta the bring depression. you back I, I, down. I think there was originally planned for a reprise of we're in the money and yeah. Um, they decided it didn't work artistically or didn't or, or circum circumvented the message that they were trying to convey with uh, Forgotten Man. You can't follow the Forgotten Man. Back then, specifically in 1933, people didn't leave because the movie was over. You didn't go in at the beginning of the movie either. You just walked in at any old time and then left when you recognized the spot you came in. So for the actual audience, The Forgotten Man was followed immediately by We're in the Money Again. (laughs) Uh, Well, there you go. Well, my reading claims that, uh, and this, of course, could be apocryphal because it did come from the Internet, um, was was that the uh, Forgotten Man number was originally placed in the middle of the movie and then the studio came in and said, no, that's too good. That's got to be at the end. That's got to be our big showstopper. But I agree with Jason. It's a after this light, frothy, meaningless nonsense <laughs> ending to suddenly have this like, oh, by the way, you're all destitute. And when you go home, your roof will probably be leaking <laughs> yes. and uh, get ready for the bread lines. Remember when you fought in World War One? Well, the country <laughs> didn't. <laughs> well, actually, they did. And that's what this number is about. Mm-hmm. Sorry about it. This happens like uh, right on the heels of the bonus army marches in Washington where uh, veterans from from the First World War were demanding their their bonus payment or their their uh, like pension payment all at one uh, spot because you know they they couldn't wait until 1940 something when when they were supposed to get paid so it was in the public's mind the uh, the World War 1 veterans what i think is interesting about this is you know they're they're looking backward of course we now looking at this are saying, well, you know, you're not too far away from another army being raised uh, and another world war. And in fact, you're closer to the next world war than you are to the last one that you're thinking about. This song is such a strange mix of self-awareness and non-self-awareness because it's like they're clearly aware of the context in which they're making this movie and they want to include this number that recognizes all of that. But they also still made the movie in the first place. That's this really lighthearted farce. So they didn't want to like go all the way with the farce, but they also didn't want to commit to making a serious movie. So they're like, let's make the farce and then just end it by reminding everyone that we're <laughs> all still sad. Yeah, they didn't know what they were doing yet. It's great. Yeah. 
This whole movie feels kind of stream of consciousness to me in that way. I mean, another thing that's weird to me is the way this movie keeps changing main characters. Because for the first, first, you know, 30 minutes or so, you feel like Polly and Brad are going to be the heroes of the story. And then it completely switches to, oh, no, that's, uh, they're, they're incidental. Uh, Trixie and Carol are actually our protagonists. And then when Peabody and, uh, I have Peabody and Sherman written down here, but Peabody, <laughs> Peabody and Jay Lawrence show up, then we suddenly are, you know, following them around. And it's very strange. Not to do the, the they're still figuring things out, but that's how they handled on ensemble pieces in those days where it, where they would just switch from character to character and forget about the characters they had already had. I was going to say it reminds me of Marx Brothers movies where it turns out that the um, that our two our romantic couple is like the romantic couple in a Marx Brothers movie where they're just kind of happy and it's fine. And then it's the other characters who are going to wreak havoc and and have bizarre situations and all of that. And so basically like Carol and Trixie yeah. are the Marx Brothers in this right. in this scenario. And it was kind of like that, except uh, Polly and Brad are the Zeppos of the piece. Yeah, yeah exactly. they didn't have enough. Yeah obstacles to actually have a romance story about them. You guys want to talk about Brad real quick? Sure, why okay. not? Okay. I understand some people find Dick Powell boring and sappy as a juvenile in this movie. Uh-huh. Insipid would be the word I would use. Uh, so would Dick Powell. Um, in 1933 alone, he's in this 42nd Street and Footlight Parade and then for the next 11 years his movie list is titles like Broadway Gondolier and Star Spangled Rhythm and a bunch more uh, Gold Diggers movies until fi until finally he's able to force them to trade him to a different studio and he gets to make Murder My Sweet where he is a great Philip Marlowe. The thing I love about Dick Powell is that the first half of his career he's just playing the same the same gooey-eyed uh, boy singer <laughs> over and over again and then like World War II hits and Dick Powell has seen some <laughs> and then he suddenly is, is making film noir he's in uh, as Monty said Murder My Sweet he's in one of my favorite obscure movies The Tall Target where he's thwarting Lincoln's assassination it's he, 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 the latter half Dick Powell movies are fantastic. Let's go around quick, uh, quick kind of final thought about this before we hear that opening chord and go to a hard day's night. Dr. Drang, you want to start? Okay. I like the first number and I like the ending number. So, I, so you know, we're in the money and the forgotten man. And I think we should, we should mention Edda Moten, who is the singer. Oh, yes, uh, yes, yes. Throughout, you know, both her own part, they actually showed her singing on stage because they were very liberal, apparently. And uh, and then oh, she's also obviously singing Joan Blondell's part because, you know, we go from Edda Moten singing and then we go back, <laughs> we cut back to Joan Blondell with her lips moving and it's the same damn voice. I, I like both of those. The, and of course, I love Guy Kibbe. Guy Kibbe is, is spectacular. I, I Man, I... I um, this is not my kind of movie. He loves so. it. Not for you. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, Monty? There's a line in Petting in the Park where they go, struggle just a little. That's gross. <laughs> <laughs> in the context of the Petting in the Park number, it's even gross. I would like to remind people that it ends with a man opening a woman's uh, bikini with a or bathing suit with a can, with a can opener. opener. So. An old timey can opener, too. Yeah, and it, it, it fades out for us. We don't, uh, but, but I guess the audience in the, in the theater actually got to see how that ended. <laughs> I guess, maybe. Uh, yeah. Quinn, uh, final judgments? <laughs> yes, that's uh, pretty gross. Uh, you know, I feel like it was a very kind of standard 
old musical, everybody gets married at the end, fun time. Um, I enjoyed it. I'm not sure I would ever go back to it, but I had a good time watching. And Steve? Yeah, my last note here, just based on that Forgotten Man number, is what a weird freaking ending to a weird freaking movie. (laughs) And I'm actually curious from Phil, is this a weird movie in the context of its time, or is this just how things generally, you know, in the the next, you know, five, six new musicals that came out, were they all similar to this? And Structure? I think the Busby Berkeley musicals were pretty weird, even in the context of their time. I think they okay. were big and, and showy, and there were there were crazy scenes, and, and maybe some others uh, would emulate that style, but never as well or as confidently as uh, Busby Berkeley uh, yeah. did it. I, I do think it's pretty weird. I think it's delightfully weird. It's really strange. I mean, yeah. the, 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 the musical numbers, I think... Maybe I'm just less impressed with synchronized prop waving than audience of the, of the 30s. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, honestly, they didn't do much for me. The middle section I enjoyed quite a bit, uh, although even that was strange. So I, I'm not entirely sure what I think yet. I really, I, I will say I really enjoyed watching it just because it's so strange and because I haven't seen a lot of movies from this period and certainly not a, not a lot of musicals from this period. So uh, it was an enjoyable view. Good, good, bad, or bad, bad? I honestly have no idea yet. (laughs) I really enjoyed it. I did not like the last number at all, but I enjoyed the movie for what it was. It was much better and funnier and I think more clever than I really expected going into it. And so I was was pretty happy to... Uh, to get to that point, and I, I I did enjoy it. So so yes, I I I'd say uh, a thumbs up for me. It's super weird, but it made me laugh, and I thought it was enjoyable how strange it was. So yeah, yeah. I I as I think is evident throughout our discussion is I really enjoy this picture. Um, I've seen it a couple times now. I enjoy it each more. I I enjoy it more each time I see it. Um, and uh, I've been on a pre-code movie uh kick lately <laughs> those movies are really fun all right we uh i i hear the sound of a guitar chiming it's Playing. been a hard day's <laughs> night uh richard lester directing the beatles at the height of Beatlemania in black and white beautiful glorious sumptuous black and white as they are uh being chased through the streets by screaming crowds and it's a day in the life Uh, but not that song that was later, of the Beatles uh, as they go from train to hotel to... A train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room and a room. Yeah. There's a press press conference in there. And a helicopter. Don't forget the press conference. Uh, And it's a hard day And a field. They dance in a field. Don't forget the field. That's right. They're not petting in the park. They're dancing in a field. It's totally Mm -hmm. different. Uh, So, Phil, uh, tell us about a hard day's night. Oh, can I? This is not a plot-heavy movie. Um, I think, in fact, Jason, you probably just summarized the plot. When it's a, it's the Beatles are being chased. They get on a train. They're going to London to be on a TV show. Um, They appear on the TV show and have many misadventures along the way. And then they uh, perform a nice little concert in the movie. And then they go off to go somewhere else. Um, Along for the ride are their 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 manager. Norm, who's uh, continually upset about something, as as you would be if you had to deal with John Lennon twenty four hours a day. Um, <laughs> yeah, I love that they don't mince words about that either. It's oh, no. Lennon that's the troublemaker. By the end of the movie, you see his point. You're a swine. Apparently, to get an idea of what to do for the movie, the uh, screenwriter Alan, Alan Owen, yeah. followed them along on a uh, on a tour of France. 
and was watching just them interact and said, well, here's the movie. <laughs> and, and, and there you go. So there's the manager, Norman. There's the, um, there's the, his assistant manager, Shake, who's taller than Norman. And, uh. um, also there is, uh, Paul's grandfather, Wilfred Brembo, who's very clean, who's very clean and just the nastiest person that <laughs> you will everyone he's a he's a right mixer mm -hmm. is what i a king mixer a villain also somehow the british red fox yes yes, that's, that's yes. steptoe his own bad self yes from steptoe and son which would become sanford and son which and is apparently where the calling him a clean man <laughs> joke originated because <laughs> in steptoe yes. he's a dirty old man he's a he's a filthy old man and uh he he just stirs up all kinds of trouble and is always uh escaping uh who, who's ever watching him and he's forging beetle signatures hey polly get <laughs> Give us your John Hancock or whatever the John Henry. John Henry, excuse me, I don't know my Britishisms. And uh, yeah, that's the movie. There's and they said they they sing a lot of songs that you'll so recognize. Here, here's the thing. So yes, they the whole album, The Hard Day's Night, which is interestingly the, the the third studio album from the Beatles and the first one that's completely just Beatles original. songs. Yeah, no no covers. And on uh, and one of the things and I know that album really well. I, I've listened to it many more times than I've seen the movie, but I have seen the movie a handful of times. And one of the things that strikes me about it in this context of talking about musicals that, and, and how this was influential on music videos is there are music performance scenes, both the big ones where they're all plugged in and also the uh, ones where they're just uh, kind of rehearsing on the spur of the moment and yet performing exactly as the album song version sounds because, you know, whatever. There are also several songs in this movie where it's literally just, yeah, here we're playing a Beatles song here while stuff happens. And the, the most famous instance of that, I is um, uh, can't buy me love when they're yeah, running around yeah. in the in the field in the and field. jumping and 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 yeah. spinning and and they've sped up the the motion of the film and 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 somewhere a young Benny Hill watches that and goes ooh. <laughs> I can do that. Well, a trumpeter uh, warms up behind him. It's the most Richard Lester-y thing ever. So there's there the yeah the plot is basically that uh, Paul's grandfather causes trouble and so various times <laughs> there's trouble and Ringo the the real plot is at one point Ringo walks away and they have to get <laughs> <Yes>. him back. <laughs> That's pretty much the big thing that happens in this in this movie. But it's just a series of vignettes about them being chased by fans and not being able to maybe enjoy themselves like they'd like and feeling kind of like they're they're uh, they're spunky but they're also prisoners of their own fame and they have a, like a little a little low stakes adventure as themselves doing their stuff and it's kind of charming when you think about it that like they're like the Beatles are huge we need to make a movie starring the Beatles and the answer is we're just going to have them play themselves doing what they do and yeah. play the songs that they've written and that's it that's it. And this is barely a year after their first album came out. Yeah. And it's also you you'll you'll notice as you're watching the movie there are no long speeches delivered by the Beatles. They they get <laughs> they get a line, maybe two lines, and then they cut away the, to the next Beatle. Because when they again when they were writing it, we don't know if these guys can act. We don't know if they yeah. they have any camera I think presence. They so. Acquit themselves quite well. They're definitely quite. They're all charismatic. And and by the time you get to Help, which was their next movie, also directed by Richard Lester, everyone's a bit more confident, and it's more of a, a an actual movie with a with 
plots and lines and, and what have you. But here, unfortunately, they're also much, much more stoned during that movie. Well, sure. <laughs> I love sure. Help, though. I got to tell you, I really oh, sure. enjoy I love help. that movie. So like I said at the beginning of this, this is the first time I've ever seen Hard Day's Night. And I was a bit familiar with what it was. And my conception of it was like the Beatles sing some songs. And that was what it was. So I felt like delivered on what I picked up. <laughs> Tick that box. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> yeah. What's interesting is the part that I was most familiar with was um, the press conference scene where they just have a lot of really snappy comebacks to reporters' questions because I've seen um, GIFs from that scene and just uh, screen caps of it in various places online, especially on Tumblr. People just love that scene, and I, I've seen all of those lines before in different places, and so it was really enjoyable to actually see it in context of the movie, even though it like doesn't have full context like it it is what it is um but i also i really enjoyed this i thought it was so sweet and i think beatles music for me is just very wholesome and um reminds me of being a kid and like everything seems very sweet and low stakes i think is a word Uh that jason used to describe this movie which is i would absolutely would as well um and i would love to just put this on in the background when i'm doing something else and just like it uh, it just feels very comforting to me in a way it's wacky shenanigans with some good music and i love that and you think about they had just hit it big that we were talking about like how do you you go see gold diggers of 1933 and it's like being in the front row at a broadway musical this is uh, the world loves the beatles music but doesn't know a lot about them and has not really seen them close up and so this movie kind of fulfills that almost kind of uh documentary I mean, it's shot like a documentary and it is like, what, what is it like? Who are they like a little bit? And what is it like to be with them in the bubble of Beatlemania? And so for people who had not, you know, maybe you see an, an interview with them, but mostly were just, they were just performing live on, on uh, TV shows or you were listening to the records. So it was like a, an incredible opportunity for fans of the band to uh, learn about their personalities and yeah it's fiction and all of that but but still like it, it's it, it maybe we know these characters more than the world did when they made this movie and you can really see who the the characters of the Beatles are when you when you watch this they had just come back from the first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show right. when they shot this movie you know that was that was in February right I think and they started shooting this movie in March or April of 64. So, you know, Beatlemania had been going really strong in England uh, from 1963. And, you know, you had to make this movie right away because pop stars yeah. didn't Flash, last. Their flashes in the pan. This, this Flash would be in the pan. come and gone. Yeah. And the, the Beatles um, you know, did not want to make an Elvis style movie because those all sucked and they knew they sucked and they held off until they got and they knew Richard Lester from his association with the goons and they uh, they knew Alan Owen because he was also he had, I don't know if he was from Liverpool but he lived in Liverpool for quite a while and he'd also written some TV show that had the Liverpools so they liked him too uh, uh, Brian Epstein was very interested in not having this be a uh, an Elvis type uh, movie or the other type of jukebox movie. So, you know, all together a lot of things came together and but it's but it's largely because the boys didn't want to make a crappy movie that they ended up making a great movie. 
Yeah, it's interesting that from the studio's perspective, uh, United Artists, as far as they were concerned, this was the cash grab of all cash yeah. grabs. And it wasn't right. even the oh, yeah. movie that was the cash grab. It was the fact that they were going to be the ones to release the next Beatles album that had the yep. six songs that ended up showing up in this movie, plus some incidental stuff uh, from uh, George Martin. Sure. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah. it, from their perspective, this whole thing was a write-off. This was, uh, the, who cares about the movie? We're going to release this record and get massively rich on that. And uh, I guess just nobody told Richard Lester or the Beatles or <laughs> Alan Owen or anybody else in involved with the production. It's essentially it the producers. Yeah, this by all rights, this movie should have been the quick cash grab and forgotten to history, and instead it is on many lists of the of the great movies of the 20th, 20th century, which is kind of amazing. And, and you can see, like, I mean, as... Uh, as a child of the uh, of the MTV era, of the music video era, which some of us on this panel are in that generation, that Gen X uh, MTV generation, um, it is very hard for me to watch this movie and not see the DNA of my entire teenage life uh, <laughs> yeah. constituted right here. Like, and and mm-hmm. and I'll point out also that in that period, MTV. Uh, also aired the monkeys because again direct connections like the monkeys were also like this is what you do with music and videos and quick cuts and and telling a story while the music is playing and all of that and uh, hard day's night although it's in black and white and so it feels like it's from another time like you 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 play it and you realize this is the entire rule book of how to do music videos of how to do long form stuff like uh, i think about when michael jackson would bring in directors to make videos for him and it's like you know it all starts with a hard day's night this is literally like how do we do a good version of the uh you know pop band with a bunch of songs and this i i just this is the template for it 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 is every time i watch it i'm amazed at how it, it lays down all the rules of how to make a music video in this one film and it really really humanizes the beatles i think in an interesting totally totally Uh, And I'd be really curious. I'm actually surprised I've never done this before, but uh, I'd be really curious to dig up Alan Owen's script and see exactly how much of it is script and how much of it is off the cuff stuff that they just kind of came up with on the moment, because it really feels like it's these quips are coming you know, completely off the cuff. And so that means either the script is superb uh, or I mean, uh, it it means either it is off the cuff or or it means that uh, that. they're much better actors than I give them credit for because it really does seem like, you know, oh, it's just these fun, fun loving lads that have a quick wit and a good sense of humor. A lot of it was scripted. Uh, I, my understanding is that John probably did the biggest improving or off the cuff stuff. Yeah. But and, uh, and even at that, it wasn't a lot. But Alan Owen no. had he had that liver Liverpool attitude down. He knew it well. Well, he did spend and, some time with him in advance to kind of ensure yeah. that he had the tone right. But he, as but well. he also just because anytime you you listen to Paul talk, he or talking about Liverpool, they also you know no, he says everybody like in Liverpool talks this way. Well, clearly that's not the case. Nobody, not everybody is that clever. But there is a there's a certain aspect uh, of that to uh, apparently to to people who are there. That's you know they talk by insulting each other. You're a swine, that sort of thing. And, <laughs> John, behave yourself, or I'll murder you. Yeah, and they're all oh God, and they're I all very that. verbal. The scene I love the most in this, and it's it's not one that that 
often gets talked about, like the press conference or the running around in the field and that, is when George goes into the um, <laughs> the TV producer's uh, <laughs> uh, oh, office and he, yeah, the, 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 you'll love these shirts. They're fab or whatever pimply uh, expressions of hyperbole. I wouldn't be caught dead in those. They're grotty. She's a drag. A well-known well drag. Known. That's such a good <laughs> phrase. Yeah. yeah. And I, I just, I think that uh, scene encapsulates the the entire attitude of the the movie and why I think it appeals um, across uh, generations, even people who weren't alive at that particular time. It just um, uh, makes you, you feel like, yeah, life belongs to the young. (laughs) That scene makes me feel like it's a good thing for England that the Beatles are locked up so much because whenever (laughs) they get out and start interacting with anyone, they're menaces. It's chaos. It's madness. So beautiful. Yeah, it's funny because to me... As, as somebody, you know, a child of the 70s and living in this jaded age that we do, I look back at their, their clowning and I'm like, oh, they're such harmless funsters. I, you know, there's nothing to worry about for these happy-go-lucky lads. But in reality, in 1964, this probably all came off as incredibly subversive. You know, it's, it's far, far worse than just the haircuts and the music and the girls peeing in their seats. These these guys are out to completely upend society. The only thing that really got me in this movie of all of their various hijinks and things is when um, he cut the measuring tape that the guy was holding up. And I was like, that's a, that's a tool for that man's job. <laughs> well, he is just standing there sort of stupidly holding it. So. They also, um, what, what's not portrayed here is all of the, uh, in whatever city they're in during all of this, all of the important police services that are not being uh, granted people not being saved by police because the entire police department is involved in either staking out the Beatles venue or chasing the Beatles in and out of the police station. That's the whole thing. I I don't know, Jason, that car thief really doesn't uh, uh, profit too well. (laughs) from uh... You know, the car thief pushed his luck a little too far. I think that's the lesson there. Are you at all worried about that poor woman who fell all the way to hell? <laughs> She's okay. She comes back up with some guy that was down the, the hole guy, for some reason. Another guy that was down in the hole. In the hole. Yeah. <laughs> One of the many hole workers of, of England. That's a good gag, though. I like that gag. Yeah. Every time where he's like putting the coat over the mud puddles and then she steps in a hole and it's gone. It's amazing. She just sort of slowly descends into it. Ooh. You can sort of tell that it was sped mm-hmm. up and uh, she was even more slowly descending oh, into yeah. it originally. Yeah. But it's, I liked no, it's that gag, that, but... The gag that always kills me is Ringo's tiny little jump in the Can't Buy Me Love sequence. That's great. <laughs> oh, tiny jump. My favorite gag is probably the moment where Ringo is taking a picture of himself with the camera perched oh. on a rock. And for absolutely no reason, he presses the shutter button and the camera flies about six <laughs> feet backwards into the lake. It's like, oh, that's typical Ringo. Oh, Ringo. That's his luck. <laughs> My eight-year-old daughter would like to say a word for the scene where John is in the bathtub uh, with the um, oh with the submarine, and then uh, uh, Norm comes in and says, "Come on, Lennon!" and pulls out the plug, and all his, his hat is left. John. And, and then John wanders in. Come on, Norm, we're we're late. And my daughter thinks that's the greatest scene in the history of cinema. I would like to give a shout out to the worst piece of IMDb trivia I've ever seen, which Uh-oh. claims that in that scene, John says the word "help." and is playing with a submarine. Therefore, he accidentally predicts the next two Beatles movies. (laughs) Mm. (sighs) Who approves these? Come on, IMDb. (laughs) 
<laughs> and throughout the movie, uh, Monty, they're on a magical mystery tour, which was mm, another interesting. 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 Yeah, it's a it's a very fun movie. It's silly and there is no plot essentially, but it is it's delightful. Adding the uh, I I want to mention the brilliance of adding Paul's grandfather as the instigator because it really is a moment of like, well, how is anything going to happen in this movie? <laughs> They're just like musicians going from place to place. And the answer is, what if we introduce Paul's grandfather, who's a real mixer, and he's <laughs> just going to make trouble wherever they go? And you accept it right at the beginning. You know, first, like, are they joking? Oh, they're not joking. And then for the rest of the movie, he's basically the devil causing trouble from place <laughs> to place. Yeah. And you're like, he even looks like what the can devil. you do? He's a right mixer. That's it. When he's been talking to the TV director, they don't even address it. Just, oh, you've been talking to him. Yeah, well, yeah, sure. I didn't realize a musical director would be critiquing my directing. <laughs> I love that the first 10 minutes of the movie are them introducing him over and over again. And it somehow gets increasingly funny every oh, time right? as more characters learn who this is. It's very clean, isn't he? He's a very, oh, he's very yeah. nice. He's a very nice old man. No, he's a right mixer. Watch no, out. he's not. And props you know, for Wilford Bram, Brambell, who just yeah. plays it to the T. He is hilarious yep. in this. Yep. You know, all the acting is fun, but I like seeing them play the music, too. They look like they're having so much fun together. Mm-hmm. Ringo, that head bob and the grin that he constantly has on his face looks like he has gas or something. But he's, <laughs> that's he's very he fussy the, about his drums, you know. It, it's, they loom yes, large it's, in his legend. My, my only issue with the musical stuff, uh, the performances, is the thing that I always have with, and I alluded to it earlier, with the thing where all of a sudden you're playing a pristine studio number and it you know but you were just kind of like noodling on your guitar a second ago but now it's all pristine and and in this the big problem is like when they're on stage i can kind of let it go when they're on stage in the big performance but at the beginning they do that uh, sort of like when they're in the sound check and the thing that really gets me is like if you listen to the music there's a missing instrument because they you know, it, yeah, it's not just right. it's not just Who's a, playing the piano on this train. Yeah. Yeah. Where's that acoustic guitar, guys? Because John's just got the harmonica. And yeah. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely doing the chords and they're sweating. They are. Like I, I buy that they're actually they are. working. And, and Ringo is 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 working hard on the drums for sure. My, my one complaint in the concert uh, scene is that they repeat songs from earlier you know you know what i really like about that concert scene and i feel like at the time it was probably much more revolutionary than it is now which is all the time spent in the control room where it's very much like hey fans you've seen the beatles on tv but did you know what it's like to be in the studio when they're on tv and so you you see them like they're on they have those lingering shots where it's like the close-ups of the beatles from like a paul from different angles on the monitors in the the control room it's really really cool and um, like even now it strikes me as being cool and it had back then it had to have been like whoa this is you know I can't it's never before seen how how you could view the Beatles this way and, and I really loved it I love that stuff. yeah there's shots there's shots where you can see the TV monitor on the stage where so they can see themselves yeah. and all the equipment's cool and old-timey too which is extra cool now Although occasionally they're live on a different set than they're seeing in the control well, room which is a little disorienting <laughs> yeah. that's the magic they're television, very talented <laughs> I love all the shots of the screaming teenage girls as well and how you can kind of hear the girls screaming throughout the entire <laughs> performance. Just kind of, you know, that's that's realistic. It also is just such a reminder to me of like how much of the Beatles fame was propelled by this young female fan base that like is pretty standard in modern day. Like almost every really mainstream thing that you get in the cultural zeitgeist is kind of propelled 
propelled by this teenage girl fandom and they all want to marry all the people in the band and all that kind of thing. And like the Beatles were really the the beginning of that on a huge level. And it's also interesting because that cultural force is so often disrespected by a lot of people. And it's like, well, but we started with the Beatles fandom and they're one of the most important influential bands of all time. So Teenage girls are powerful. Yeah. And if you watch any of the the real um, concert footage from this era, you basically, you can barely hear them pr- perform yeah. because of the yeah. screaming mm-hmm. of the fans, which was, it's it's really remarkable. I will point out that um, in Roger Ebert's review of this for his great movie series, this line uh, has always made me laugh where he says, my favorite audience member is the tearful young blonde beside herself with ecstasy, tears running down her cheeks, crying out, George. And George. I, I watched this yeah. one and I'm like, oh, there's she is <laughs> it's like yeah. she's completely yep. lost it because of there, there's it's also great. there's also a hefty little boy having a moment in the yeah. crowd yep. who, who i've always identified with i like that they made sure to have one crying out each name and they're enunciating it so clearly mm-hmm. that yes even though it's not on the soundtrack you know what it sounded like when she yelled Ringo. Yeah. Viewers who would like to see live footage of the Beatles uh, performing, I would recommend um, Eight Days a Week, which uh, mm. is the uh, recent Ron Howard documentary of the uh, uh, Beatles uh, uh, U.S. tour, their last uh, their last tour. Quite enjoyable. If you want to see them in a typical concert, find the Shea Stadium tour yes. where they couldn't hear themselves at all. No. And you could see them just chatting with each other and tuning during songs. Cause what difference did it make at that <laughs> yeah. point? A hard day's night. So I'll go around one last time for the, uh, for the, for the judgments on this one. I, I, everybody seems pretty positive about it, but if you've got final words about it, uh, now would be a good time. Dr. Drang, your thoughts. Well, uh, to your point about it being the start of MTV, of course it, it is. And you also have in here, you know, archetypes of the different kinds of of music videos so can't buy me love yeah. is the song playing in the and that's the one everybody thinks of but but it's the song playing in the background and then something is going on that has nothing to do with with it then you also have the various ones where it's basically them playing and that a lot of music videos were just that. Mm-hmm. And then there's the other one where there's sort of a story going on, but uh, and and the song is playing and then and and that's the I should have known better. Um, in the, tra- the the one that's done in the train, right? Where which I which I really like because they're uh, and this is part of the sort of there's a surrealistic undertone to this to this movie. Uh, you see it first when they're running alongside the train to insult the old man in their in their cabin. Hey, Mister, we want our ball back. Very slow uh, but train. Also, <laughs> but also, no, they're very fast. Uh, okay, Grandpa's clean and they're fast. The uh, but the the one in the uh, in the in the caged up place where they've locked up Grandpa and they start playing and they're playing cards and then they're playing instruments and they're back to playing cards again and they're back to playing instruments again and it, that's that's another archetypal uh, music video. The um, you know the press conference scene is not it is definitely better than their own press conferences. But if you've seen their press conferences, they were very witty in the press conferences. They were very funny. And one of the reasons why they kept having press conferences is because they were so good at it. And the press just ate them up. They were, they were so charismatic. And what was great about this movie was that Richard Lester saw that and, and got it on film. He got their their charisma. And as uh, I think everybody has said, the 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 joy that they seemed to be showing as they were playing. Um, they just, they seemed like they were having fun. They, uh, it, it, 
this is just a delightful movie in in all regards. I just uh, the the one piece that I like especially because I'm a John fan is uh, John's encounter with the woman in the hallway. You look just like she, yeah. She thinks oh, he's somebody. So it is it is very well played. It is and and it's it's well written and it is well acted by John even. And uh, so I, I love that piece. I went back on that scene because I was like, wait, did I miss something? Nope. And then I went and I was like, nope, they really <laughs> never say a name. It, this is the whole thing. This is great. Yeah, it's completely absurd. It's great. It's great. So, Quinn, um, you know, first time viewer, your overall uh, final thoughts? So I watched this on YouTube movies and in the description, um, it was described as deliriously entertaining, which definitely makes it sound like it was written by the blonde girl with tears streaming down her face. <laughs> <laughs> but I did find it really wonderful. I enjoyed it. The word I would use, the word I used to describe this movie was just hijinks. Um, and I have expressed a lot of positive thoughts over it in the course of this conversation. I will say I did not 100% keep the Beatles straight throughout the movie. I was just like, ah, yes, there's a Beatle. Um, but <laughs> They're a boy band. That's yeah, what they've it's got like. the haircuts and the suits yeah. so you can identify them as Beatles. They really match. Um, but even with all of that, I had a really good time. I laughed. I love the music and I will be definitely watching this again. All right. Uh, Monty? Um, I love this movie to death. Part of it is because it's full of ridiculous throwaway lines like there you go, hiding behind a smoke screen, smoke screen of bourgeois cliches, which for some reason, all of the nonsense lines are delivered just stiltedly enough to make me happy. <laughs> but on a non-Beatles note, I also think this movie has the most realistic Baccarat scene in movie history. Uh. At Le Cirque, the same Le Cirque as in Dr. No, you see what Baccarat is actually like. You sit down, someone speaks to you in French, you look at your cards, and they take away your money, and you don't know what <laughs> That's happened. That's right. It's very confusing. And, and you say it's over. Yes. Banco. Yep. Yep. And a great swimmer leans over your shoulder. Yeah. I chuckle at that every time, because in the Bond movies, it's like, I, am, is it me? Am I not following this? In this movie, it's like, no, it's baffling. You have no idea what's going on. <laughs> and then you just have to go steal money from somebody else and, and continue to play. Uh, Steve? Yeah, as a lover of the Beatles and a great lover of absurdity, obviously this is a this film's right in my wheelhouse. I will say I don't enjoy it as much as I once did, having seen it a million times. Uh, I, I still love all of the one-liners and and the goofing off. Um, the concert scenes kind of bore me now, particularly because this these six songs are probably among my least favorite yeah. in the entire Beatles uh, discography. But I remember at one time I loved those to death, too, just because um, and the rest of the film as well. I realize it's supposed to be a fictionalized account of the Beatles, but it sure as heck feels more like a documentary to me. Having seen, you know, so many press conferences and having seen uh, footage of their real their real concerts, you know, it, it, it really feels like you're spending 36 hours with these goofballs. Uh, and I find that fascinating. Even if I didn't like the band so much, I, I, I would find that interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I still think it's great. And, um, and, uh, I really like kind of how they, uh, sort of carve out specific personalities for these guys that would follow them kind of throughout their filmic career. Like, obviously, Ringo is not the put-upon sad fellow with his hideous great hooter <laughs> and that poor little head trembling <laughs> under the weight of it. Uh, and George is not, you know, this deadpan guy dropping one-liners left and right. And I mean, so John Lennon probably is pretty much what John Lennon was. It's a smart ass, um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
But uh, yeah, I just think it's a fantastic movie. I, I feel like uh, maybe what it wrought in the MTV era is uh, is maybe not the great thing that people make it out to be, but... <laughs> But it's history. Uh, but the, the film itself. Are we blaming this movie for Jersey Shore? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's a lot that this movie could be blamed for, but uh, just the fact that it's so groundbreaking and, and so entertaining in its own right, I, I think it's a classic. And I agree with all that. It's a very entertaining movie, uh, brilliant and so formative. Uh, and uh, I, I have not seen it a million times, only a handful. So it's always nice when I go back after a long break and watch it again. It just is uh, delightful. Uh, Phil, how'd we do? Uh, just to, to Steve's point, I think if even if you didn't like the Beatles or didn't more to, uh, di- didn't really uh, haven't ever heard a Beatles tune, if such a thing is possible, you could watch this movie and be very delighted. It's it's just a fun, funny movie. I mean, if you hate their music, please stay away because you're in for a lot of Beatles music. Yeah, you're going to hear an album the, in the, in for the for the next time, yeah. 75, 80 mm-hmm. minutes. So. Well, uh, this was a fun uh, look musicals. Look, weird, unusual musicals. Yeah. I think we can put a pin in the musical genre now that we've done uh, four of them. We've done it all. Yeah. Yeah. How dare you? Never Never. need to revisit them again. (laughs) Yeah. That's that's every musical ever done. Ever made. Yeah, sure. (laughs) We... We've had the Gene Kelly musical, the 1930s musical, the British rock band musical, and whatever 1776 was. <laughs> so that's the gamut. That's the full that's range of human entertainment. Archetypes of the musical. Yeah, the whole pyramid of musicals. I like Gold Diggers of 1933 enough to make me say I should probably watch more movies from that period because I did. I found it actually kind of enjoyable and, and uh, surprisingly funny so i actually think so too as weird as i thought it was it made me want to seek out more of this weirdness 42nd street and foot and footlight parade should be the ones the, oh, yeah. the next ones on your viewing list yeah i'll be happy to watch more from the 30s but not musicals <laughs> <laughs> the first broadway melody did somehow win best picture so yeah strange it's not great though no it's earlier than this one so it makes way less sense yeah it's nonsense all right well now we the curtain goes down on the 80 different stages that are have various things happening on them in the middle of this buzz <laughs> buzzby berkeley uh, musical number. there's a monkey playing with a neon violin run <laughs> run away in the in the rain where it's dangerous and it could get electrocuted uh anyway we're it's time for all of us to board our beetle helicopter and fly away from everything so i I would like to thank my panelists for taking this journey in the old movie club once again. Dr. Drang, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to go out and betray a rich American widow. Monty Ashley, thank you. Hey, you don't see many of these nowadays, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Quinn Rose, thank you very much. I thank you. I'm getting on my helicopter, heading over to my yellow submarine and getting far away from this place. Steve Lutz, thank you. Peabody, you're disgusting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Philip Michaels, you you look a little like him. No, I'm not. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I'm going to tur- I'm going to head to Greenland and turn left and see what I can find. Sounds sounds good. And thanks to everybody out there for listening to this edition of The Incomparable's Old Movie Club. We will see you next week.